Welcome back to another edition of the Unofficial Guide Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's I, Len Testa, and this is our second show for July. We are picking up the Disneyland Chronology series, this time dealing with uh, Disneyland from about 1970-ish to, uh, to 1975. As you guys recall, the last episode that we had on this was the, the day the hippies invaded Disneyland, and that was one of our most popular episodes. Got a lot of great feedback on that, uh, and we'll see how uh, how Disney deals with the uh, the changing times of the uh, the 1970s. But before we do that... We need to bring in our resident historian and flying ace, Mr. Jim Hill. Jim Hill, how's it going? Sorry, just had to land a plane. Um, <laughs> I, I'm fine, Len. I, I have coffee, and I'm, I'm upright, so that's a good morning. It's so. a win. All right, so let's talk, uh, Jim, now let's talk a little bit about the history of Disneyland. Remember the last episode we picked up, uh, we ended, sorry, with uh, the hippies invading Disneyland yep. in 1970. Now this is the period, 1970, late 1970 to 1975. How does how does it begin? Well, again, you know, the times were changing, and Disneyland had to change with the times. So it's long been rumored that Disney actually shut down the Indian village at, at Disneyland and renamed its Indian war canoes, They calling them the Davy Crockett Explorer canoes, mm-hmm. Because of the incident at Wounded Knee, which, uh, for those of you who don't remember, the 200 Lakota Indians took over the town of Wounded Knee, South Dakota. There was a, a 71-day standoff with the uh, the FBI and the U.S. Marshal Service. But um, the only problem with that urban legend is the Wounded Knee incident happened in February of 73, and Disney renamed the war canoes in uh, May of 71 and shut down the, the Indian village in October of that same year. So the dates don't quite line up to, to, to get that air across. But speaking of, of October 71, uh, uh, you know, those of us who know Disney history, that's when Disney World opened up. And the Imagineers actually thought that a lot of the rides at they and shows they created for Disney World were guaranteed home runs that they they were anxious to bring a lot of them back to to Anaheim if they could and the first one out of the box was going to be Country Bear and in fact that's one of the reasons they shut down the Indian Village because they needed a place in the park to put it it's kind of ironic we just a few minutes ago recorded an, an earlier podcast for July and mm-hmm. we're talking about how long it's going to take to turn Disney Hollywood Studios into a full fledged theme park it's got a dca schedule you know in that they expect that it's going to take three and a half four years at the very least to do this transformation and and the thing that's amazing when you consider that and you know we, we are now 45 plus years since they built walt disney world right when you look at how fast disney used to build things for example bear country the land that this was disneyland's seventh land they had to build this so they'd have an appropriate setting for the country bear show so again it's four and a half acres it's not just in you know this e-ticket show it's also a restaurant it's a snack bar it's, it's the biggest restrooms in the world yeah, my God, you know, it's just like if the Mormon Tabernacle Choir ever needs to pee, this is where they, I mean, <laughs> simultaneously. simultaneously. Exactly. You know. <laughs> so, um, I got a visual when you're saying that. That was funny. There we go. And, and not only that, to accommodate all of this, this stuff, they had to move the tracks of the Santa Fe and Disneyland Road, you know, and take into consideration that in order to pull off the theming of this to make it look like it's the great northwestern woods, they brought in 165 trees and planted them, moved off hundred other trees from around property. But they did this. They did all of this in less than five months. Wow. Five months. Roughly uh, an acre every month and a qu- every five weeks. 
Now, to be fair, it's important to understand that the Indian village and where Country Bear was built was built toward the back of the park. You know, it wasn't a question of like with New Fantasyland when they were building Seven Dwarfs Mine Train where you had a construction site in the middle of a working park. This was in an isolated corner. They could throw up a construction wall. Also, this was back during the period where Disneyland, during the off-season, would close on Mondays and Tuesdays. And you could really, on those two days, get in there with some heavy equipment and do some amazing work. So, again, you know, it closes in early October. It opens March 24th, 1972. And Mm -hmm. they were so convinced they were going to have a smash hit. They actually built two complete theaters that they put back to back with with full sets of bears so it's like think about it each of those shows has 22 animatronic figures so you have a total of 44 animatronic figures in you know the one giant show building that you can funnel different audiences into and i think the the hourly capacity for the complex was 1800 people an hour but they thought this is going to be a smash and it turns out it just kind of laid there you of all people know about, you know, the old adage when it comes to real estate, it's all about location, location, location. Country bears in Florida, you know, think about it. It's it's right on the main dragon frontier land. There's a breezeway that people can come at the, the thing through Adventureland. Yep. So, you know, I mean, this has got a great location where the Disneyland version was tucked all the way to the back. You had the, the longest walk from coming through the main gate. Yeah, the know. absolute back of the park. You could not get any farther back. You know, it was a hard lesson to learn because... Southern Californians came out, experienced the show once, and went, yeah, that was so cute, and basically didn't come back. As we get into the later decades, this is kind of something that Splash Mountain was built to address. Again, we're talking 71. You have to understand that Roy Disney dies, uh, you know, that they opened Walt Disney World uh, in October. Roy Disney, Walt's brother, mm-hmm. uh, dies December 20th, 1971, and so Card Walker is installed as the new head of, of the company. Uh, and, and Card got concerned very early on. That, and sometimes you hear it addressed that he's concerned that Disneyland will have a morale issue because of the, you know, the fact that there's a bigger, shinier version of what that theme park is in Florida now. Sure. Other times I've heard the story told, it's strictly from a numbers point of view, that Card is looking at the summer of 71, and it's like, look, we need something big. We need something to get people to come back to the park. And so he turns to Bob Janey, who's the the head of entertainment, and Mm -hmm. says, look, you know, we need to get something into this park. And more to the point, we need to get something that gets people to stay in the park after dark. They've seen the fireworks show. We need something different. Why is the after dark part important to them? Um, I, you know, just dinner or is it the just the way the locals work that it's after five o'clock i think you, you kind of nailed it with the food it, it's just the longer people stay in the park the more shopping they're doing the more eating they're doing you know I, I'm, again i hate to say this because every time i bring up that disneyland and walt disney world is a business there's a certain segment of the, the disney fan community <laughs> that gets upset and it's just but but it is it, it is a business yeah you know, the summer months of the time that Disneyland and Disney World, you know, do a huge portion of their business. So during that period, and particularly, again, understanding that Disneyland has to draw 70% of its attendees from the local market. It's yep. like, you know, what can we do and what can we do quickly to get people in here? And in fact, that was the other thing that was really intriguing about this. So anyway, Bob, Jenny's, you know, card puts him on the spot. We need to come up with something from the summer. And what was interesting is that... Bob had been in charge of the entertainment for the opening of of Disney World. And in in particular, uh, one of the weirder things he was tasked with was uh, as part of the three-day-long opening, grand opening celebration, 
they had decided they were going to do this waterfront luau for a thousand people on next to the Polynesian Village Resort. Wow. But again, it's, it's torch lit. You're down by the water. And so it's okay. So we do hula dancers. We do torch spinners. You know, that there's, there's the pretty obvious stuff. But at the same time, they're next to this giant body of water that, you know, Bob actually goes out to the site in late August, early September when they're still finishing up the Polynesian village. And he's, he's first of all, you know, he, he gets lost in the dark because, I mean, they, again, there are no lights installed yet. But he finally walks to where Luau Cove is going to be built, and he just looks out at this great, huge, dark expanse of water and realizes, what the hell am I going to do? I can't do the typical waterfront things that you do. I mean, you can't do a water skiing show because it's going to be dark. Right. And I can't turn a spotlight out onto the water because I'll blind the performers. So it's like, and you can't do hang gliders coming in or anything like that. This is when he comes up with the idea of the water pageant. And, really? And, and, you know, what's interesting is that you remember when they opened New Fantasyland and they made such a big deal about the dragon that flew over the park yeah. and blew fire. Yeah. That was out there for one night. And unless you were at their party or looking over the park that night, that was the only time you saw this thing. That's what the electrical water pageant was originally supposed to be. It was a one night only thing. And so Bob got money out of the entertainment budget, built 14 barges that basically with poles and you know, uh, holding up these 20 foot square pieces of chain link fence. And they stuck cr big get them, outdoor Christmas lights in the chain link to make the shapes of the various animals. That's and that's that's pretty much the, uh, the design aesthetic today. No, that's exactly it. Just, but again, the notion, this was made for one night, one night only for this luau for a thousand people. Don't get me wrong, the show's been changed out and expanded since then, but it's pretty much the same show today because somebody looked at it and went, you know, in fact, that was the thing that after the luau, people were like, well, what did you think? Do you enjoy the poi? Did you enjoy the hula dancers? How about them torch spinners? And it's like, oh, no, the thing out in the water, that was cool. And so, <laughs> You like the chain link fence and the Christmas lights. Okay, got it. <laughs> that we got from Walmart down the street. There you go. Okay. So Bob remembers this, and instead of like, okay, well, that people enjoyed that. Can we do that out in a park? Can we do that as a parade? And so, you know, and so, again, if you drill down to the PR for uh, when this opened up, the June 17th, 1972, uh, Disney's PR team is, you know, all about the, oh, there's over, you know, a half a million lights and there's 500 miles of wiring. And, but honestly, the thing that, that is most impressive about the show, this is the first use in the parks of rechargeable nickel cadmium batteries. Nice. Now, honestly, Ron Mitziger, who was the project manager on the Main Street Electrical Parade, I, I interviewed him back in March of this year. And he flat out told me that, that, you know, they are in the middle of getting these parade floats built. This is March or April. They still don't have a clue how they're going to power them. All right. And well, it that's was right. Because these are electrical, but they can't run a cord. Yeah. And, <laughs> and generators would be loud enough that you couldn't hear the music. Yeah. And so nickel uh, cadmium batteries suddenly appear in the late winter, early spring of 1972. And Disney falls on them like wolves. They, they buy up <laughs> every everyone they can get their hands on in Southern California. So so you have, you know, for the initial edition of the, the Main City Electrical Parade, you have 12 floats 
that have 680 of these batteries scattered among them. And so, I mean, just the weight of these floats, if you combination of the light bulbs, the audio equipment and the batteries, you're talking about 27 tons of material that has to be dragged through the streets. And at the same time, I think the thing that really gets to me about this, uh, think about it. Roy Disney passes away December 20th, 1971. Cardwalker assumes power basically New Year's Day of 72. He mentions this to Bob Janey about I'm concerned about Disneyland. We need a, something for the summer of this summer. Less than six months. They not only design and build this thing and have no clue as they're building it how they're going to power it. And they get this thing out the door. And not only that, they get it into the parks and it becomes this beloved thing. Wow. But again, when you talk with Ron about this, he would describe the scene backstage. I mean, the behind the scenes story of the Main Street Electric Parade is kind of horrifying because it, anything that could have gone wrong did go wrong in this project. I mean, take, for example, they hired a company, the Sylvestri lights out of Chicago. They had done Christmas lights displays, and this is basically what this was. So they said, okay, you guys build this stuff, you build the floats, and we'll come collect them in late May, and we'll do our rehearsals in the park, and we'll be good to go. And so Ron goes to the factory in Chicago, mid-April or thereabouts, and finds out they are ridiculously behind schedule. They, they, you know, They're never going to be ready in time. And so Ron says, okay, Hold up. He hires 14 moving vans, and that day they clear everything out of Sylvester and drive it back to Disneyland. So now they're backstage with, you know, well, this is the piece of centralist canopy. No, that's actually a horse halter. You know, trying to figure out, because they, they just grabbed everything and threw it moving vans. Yeah, yeah. You know, picture this. It's the night of the press premiere, and you're backstage between, you know, Tomorrowland and Main Street, USA. They are still bolting together the floats and plugging them in as the parade is getting underway. In fact, Rod describes this moment where they would open the gate to lay the latest float out. And it's like, get off the float, get off the float. You know? <laughs> and so electricians are leaping off, you know, like the rats off of a sinking ship. All right. And, and the floats roll out in front of the press. Meanwhile, they haven't really entirely figured out how nickel cadmium batteries, you know, the rechargeable ones work yet. Right. It's because it's new technology. They just they absolutely just new okay. technology. And so what happens is that the parade float comes out. It goes around town square in front of the press, and then it proceeds to head up Main Street. And again, thank God this is a, a press preview. So there's very few people in the park. And what happens is that as the parade floats begin to go up Main Street, by the time they make it to the hub in front of the castle, they basically lost all of their charge. Oh, all right. Funny. So they go dark. But the press is so dazzled by the parade floats that are in front of them, nobody notices that the parade goes dark as it goes up the, the further street. Though eh, it's, an, it's an effect. It's supposed to happen. Well, no, in fact, it, it, what's cool about the press coverage is a couple of people who did notice it thought, oh, it's Disney magic. You know, just sort of, how do you do that effect? And it's like, well, you know, there's lots and lots of work. Oh, <laughs> just the timing is just. But again, it's it's a success. I mean, it's a huge success. Just remember, this was supposed to be only something that was done for the summer of 1972. Nobody ever thought, particularly the, the electricians who are leaping off of the floats, that this is going to be a classic that is going to launch parades worldwide, that's going to stick around for decades, 
They're just trying to get the thing out the door, you know. But the weird thing is that Disney, on the back of the success of this parade, and and let's remember that 72 gives way to 73, uh, we are now creeping up on the American Bicentennial. You know, so the Walt Disney Company really kind of fixates on that. And it's like, we should do, wow, this parade really got a big reaction. We should do another parade, a daytime parade, you know, something that celebrates America. We'll get to that in, in a moment, the America on Parade Parade from the Department of Redundancy Department titles. But yeah, it's it's a very weird time for the Disney Company at this point. I mean, okay, fall of 72 after the first season of Bain Street Electrical Parade goes through. And, and again, you're trying to get people to focus on the park during the off-season. So one of the weirder things they did is in late October of 72, they had the Winnie the Pooh for President's weekend. Really? And, Pooh for President? Yeah. Who for president? It, this is actually <laughs> okay. an idea they did in 68 that seemed popular. So they went really big with it for 72. And, and speak of presidents, just as 72 comes to a close, uh, January 1st of 73, Disney closes uh, Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln. Me, I always look for patterns. I find it intriguing that January 1st, Lincoln closes, and then February 1st of that same year, the pack mules through Nature's Wonderland closes. So it's like sort of, okay, donkeys are associated with Repub or Democrats, and Lincoln's associated with Republicans. Eh, nah, maybe. Yeah. Data coincidence. You'd have to wonder, why exactly is Disney closing Lincoln uh, just eight years after? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, this was an acclaimed attraction at the 64, at 65 New York World's Fair. What's the deal? Why are they shutting it down? Well, as it turns out, 1973 is the 50th anniversary of the founding of Walt Disney Studios. More to the point, you know, think about it. We lose Walt December of 66. We lose Roy December of 71. The company feels at this point we need to do something to honor our heritage and the, and the company's founders. And up until that point, there had been an exhibit. You might remember from the last show we talked about uh, how in, in 1970 they opened the Legacy of Walt Disney, which was basically an exhibit they set up in a storefront in Main Street. And it's like, this time we're going to do it big. We're going to do it up really big. So that's the idea. They're going to shut down Lincoln, and this is where the Walt Disney story is going to be told. And okay. They turn the lobby area into this great display of exhibits of, you know, on Walt's life. I mean, they, they get the desk from Marceline where he carved his name when he was a kid and, you know, early artwork. And, but again, there's this film of Walt's life that opens April 8th, 1973. And where the legacy of Walt Disney exhibit on Main Street used to be, they now open the Disneyland showcase. And for a lot of Disney history buffs, this was a building they haunted as kids because this is where you went and saw the model of Discovery Bay and Dumbo Circus and all of these proposed expansions for the 70s and 80s that never happened. Huh. But this is Disney's kind of first taste of the weird spot the company kind of holds it in the American pop culture. That When they opened the, the Walt Disney story, they never anticipated they'd get hate mail, but they did. And they got it from Orange County conservatives. Really? And he, well, you got to understand, uh, this is 73. This is when the Watergate is consuming Richard Nixon's presidency. And with the audio animatronic Lincoln being pulled out of Disneyland's opera house, it, seriously, there was a fear among Republicans in California that there were 
you know, the little kids of Southern California had no Republicans to look up to. So the, the town hall at, at Disneyland starts to get flooded with letters and phone calls from people like, you took out Lincoln. How could you took out Lincoln? And it's like, well, we're putting an exhibit to honor Walt. And it's the, like, the, I don't the, care. The guy whose name is on the park. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, no, you have to put this back in. And Wow. Yeah. And, and meanwhile, again, re- remember, you know, the bicentennial clock is ticking at this point. So September of 1973, the Carousel of Progress at Disneyland closes. And this is when they start prepping America Sings. They, they um, were that far ahead on that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that that wound up opening in June of 74. But, you know, the thing that sort of, you know, there's a cloud that hangs over the company during this period, and that's the oil embargo. Uh, oil embargo starts in the fall of uh, 73 and extends well into 74. And this is during a period where the Disney stock price drops below $17 a share. And there's sort of this bloodletting at Disneyland. They really, they streamline management. Uh, they, they go after, you know, they consolidate operations, foods and merch. But a lot of old timers are, are booted out the door during this period where it's like, we don't know, you know, if, if oil prices stay where they are, and this is Southern California. You need a car to get around. If they can't sure. get here, you know, just this is going to be bad. So they, they put all their hopes in, okay, so summer of 74, this is what's going to get people to come through the door. America sings. And so it opens on, you know, there's a press preview on the, the 28th of June. It opens to the public on June 29th. And uh, seriously, Len, the attractions open less than 10 days when there's – this horrible tragedy. There's this girl who works the attraction, a young kid just to join the company. Her name was Deborah Stone. Mm-hmm. The thing is, she's working in America Sings. And remember, this is the theater go round building. You, the audience sits still and, you know, the theater rotates from the sh- six different show scenes. Like uh, Carousel of Progress. There you go. Very much so. And what Deborah and her co-workers, in fact, evidently this had gone on for years uh, since Carousel opened in 67 at, at the park, that what the cast members found was that as the building was rotated, you could actually stick your head or most of your body through, you know, there was a gap, you know, as the, uh, the I building where rotated. you're going with this. All right. All right. And and so, kid, you know, the, the cast members who were working on this attraction would goof on one another and just sort of, you know, lean in. And what happened with Deborah is nobody entirely knows what happened, but she timed it wrong. And as the theater rotated, she got stuck between the wall and and I, I don't need to get into the details, yeah. but but the poor the poor kid. America Sings you know, just was beginning to be introduced, I guess, so they had to shut it down for a, a week to 10 days, and they actually went through and put in breakaway walls. You know, they, again, they, they instructed everybody, the cast members, never to do that again, but at the same time, from a safety point of view, to ensure that it never happened again, they put in breakaway walls, but it, it was too late. That the, the, the uh, you know, the poor girl had been killed, and more to the point, the, the reputation of this brand new attraction had been tainted, and it never quite came back from it. Ah, it's a shame. It is a shame. It is a shame. And meanwhile, the world moves on at Disneyland. For example, for years, the Disneyland Railroad had been known as the Santa Fe and Disneyland Railroad. But mm-hmm. uh, September of 74, Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Company, who had been sponsoring the Disneyland Railroad since 55, 
uh, they couldn't come to terms with Disney. That they just, you know, they they were having their own problems with in that people just weren't riding the trains anymore. So they didn't have the money to sponsor an attraction at a theme park. And so, so when the park reopened on October first of seventy four, the Santa Fe and Disneyland Railroad had become the Disneyland Railroad. And about the same time, the Main Street Electrical Parade, uh, which had been brought back, you know, this temporary parade had proved to be so popular that they brought it back for a second run the, the summer of 70. Uh, oh, actually, this had been its third year, excuse me. So 72, 73, 74. And 74, this is when Disney is getting serious about its a parade that would be debuting uh, in, in 75, the, the American Parade Parade. And, <laughs> American Parade Parade. <laughs> well, this is, and, and what's weird about this one, Len, is that if you look at it now, you can go online and take a look at this thing. There's so much of it that is taken from other parts of Disney. I mean, take, for example, the characters for this parade. They were called the People of America, and they actually took their inspiration from the characters of Small World. I remember we've told the story previous about there was so little time uh, when they were building Small World that they basically designed one character and by changing out the costume or the, the color of the Duraflex skin they put over the character, mm-hmm. this could be a, a child from Holland, a child from Africa, a child from uh, Antarctica. You know, I mean, it just could be from anywhere. So they decided to do the same thing with the people of America. You know, they had these get 300 characters in the parade, but they're all designed to sort of look like, you know, they have the same features. But and again, this is cute in a two and three foot tall doll in an attraction that you're floating by. Yeah. For the parade, these figures are eight feet tall. <laughs> so it's a completely different scale of creepy. Yeah. And that coupled with the fact that they decided, you know, we can't really do, we don't want this to be, a historical pageant. We don't want this to be weighed down by history. So floats do things like we're going to celebrate the first Thanksgiving or Sunday in the park or the invention of things like the light bulb, the electric iron, the phonograph. So again, you, you have these 20 foot tall turkeys that people are dragging through the park. And, and, and not only that, but because they had seen the impact that Main Street Electrical Parade had had on, on Disneyland, they decided, well, we can't just do this for one park. So they're building two identical parades at the same time. And, and more to the point, because of the experience they had with Sylvestri Company, it's like, okay, this time around we're going with professional float builders. So they hire these films. You know, they, in fact, a lot of the firms that work on the Tournament of Roses ended up making these parades of floats. And so it was this huge undertaking, a, a two and three years in development. And, you know, they have to truck all this stuff cross country. And, and at the same time, because the Baroque hoedown, the distinct that synthesizer sound of the Main Street Electrical Parade, you know, had been a key element of the success of that parade. In fact, the, the weird thing was that was the first time, summer of 73, when they brought the parade back for the first time, mm-hmm. they ended up issuing a soundtrack. That's the, that's the first soundtrack? That's the first soundtrack for a parade. For, for, oh, you right, know, right. Yeah, yeah. Because they had, you know, yeah. And so the Samurai just like, all right, so that has a distinct modern sound. What should we do for this thing? And they they ended up finding, they found this band organ, the Sadie Mae from 1890. And it's it's one of these giant beasts of an organ. You know, it it had like 1,400 hours just to restore the thing. Wow, so more than six months. Wow. 
Yeah, but in the end, when it was operating, it had it could do the sound of twenty trumpets, eight trombones, uh, seventeen violins, and uh, seventeen piccolos. And they had so anticipated this would be Main Street Electrical Parade two that again, you can go out that there's if you you haunt eBay, mm-hmm. there's all sorts of stuff that was done for you know, including a soundtrack album issued for this thing. So anyway, this launches in seventy five. Meanwhile, back of the house, you've got Don Tatum and Card Walker. They're Feeling pressure from from both sides. The success of Walt Disney World uh, has people asking, well, what's going on with Epcot? And more to the point, they're thinking, well, how are we going to pay for Epcot? Right. And for 15 years now, they've had gentlemen from Japan coming to the Disney company. And it's like, look, we will pay you. Just can, can we build a Disney park in Japan? And so in December of 74, just realizing that if we're going to be serious about Epcot, we got to find a way to pay for this. They go over to Japan. This is when they have the first meetings with the Oriental Land Company executives. We're still almost 10 years away from that park rising up out of the ground. But by January of that year, they are already crunching the numbers and looking at where they're, you know, where they're going to go with this project. Meanwhile, back at Disneyland, uh, February of 75, you know, it's only been open uh, less than two years at this point, but they shut down the Walt Disney story. And, and again, all of this is because of those irate phone calls and those letters. <laughs> and so from the uh, from the Orange County people, from the Orange County people. And so so one thing we one thing we forgot to mention. So everybody knows California is a, a fairly liberal state. Mm-hmm. Orange County is the exception. Or, no, Orange it, County is the is the most is one of the most conservative of the yeah. uh, of the counties here. Yeah. Absolutely. And what what ended up happening is that they shut it down for retooling in June of 75. The Main Street Opera Hope, uh, uh, you know, if you thought uh, the name of, of our podcast, folks, was was uh, was awkward, wait to hear what this new camel of attraction ended up being called. In June of 1975, the Main Street Opera House opens as the home of the Walt Disney story featuring great moments with Mr. Lincoln. Um, I'm exhausted just listening to it. Yeah, they, they, literally what they did is they kept the film in place, and but they retooled the ending to make it that one of Walt's greatest achievements was building the Lincoln figure. And so now the show ends. You have this sort of peanut butter and chocolate thing going on. It's like you get Walt's life story and you get Lincoln at the end, and that was enough to assuage the, the, the conservatives of Orange County. It's like, cool, okay, we get Walt and Lincoln. Carry on. Meanwhile, you've got the the American Parade project. Again, the company spent $8 million on these two parades going to run in, in the two different parks. And the sad thing is, even as this parade gets underway in June of, of 1975, just up the street at Knott's Berry Farm, that theme park has opened the world's first corkscrew coaster. It goes uh, 32 miles an hour. It's a, a minute and 15 minutes long. But again, it's, it's, it's one of these things where everybody in the themed entertainment industry is like, holy cow, a, a coaster that does the corkscrew. And now suddenly Disney finds itself, you know, it's not enough to have cute little singing audio animatronic animals. That its competition is moving heavily into the thrills market. Mm-hmm. You know, in fact, Universal Studios Hollywood starts to invest in things like the, the Glacier Tunnel. Uh, we're a year out from them adding the Jaws figure uh, to the tour. Thrills for the Southern California market suddenly become a very big thing. And, and don't get me wrong, you know, that Space Mountain had just opened this January. 
of 75 at Walt Disney World. And so Disney had something that they could, in fact, bring to Anaheim. The question was, where would it go? How would we build it? And what else should we bring to the parks? And that's a part of the story that we'll get to in our next installment, folks. Jim, thanks very much for uh, for this. It's an interesting period in uh, in a Disney company life. And so next time we'll hit the, uh, the the rest of the 1970s decade. Yeah, and just something else to quickly hit upon here that I know earlier today I threw a, a video at Lynn that we're going to put in the show notes. But mm-hmm. to give you some idea of how times have changed, <laughs> we, we found a video on YouTube of the holiday parade from 1975. Oh, it's folks, glorious. You have to see. All right, just to, to, and to give you some idea, when you're watching this, folks, pay attention to how many figures related to Disney's 1973 release, Robin Hood, are in this parade. You've never seen a film celebrated. And again, think about this. this is, Robin Hood is really one of considered one of the lesser Disney films now. It's, uh, it's Laurel's favorite. Is it really? It really is. It's her favorite Disney film. Wow. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. That, that's an interesting incense to Laurel. It is. It is. Okay, so this will give you some idea of what it was like to go to the parks at that time, the sort of entertainment they were doing. Again, again, this is December of 75 during this exact same period. Uh, The Walt Disney Company announced that they were going to begin construction of Epcot, which would be opening in 1976. They'd actually moved up the opening date. 76. 76. I don't work out for them. Not well. Not well. So. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll put the uh, put the parade uh, link in YouTube into the uh, the show notes, and we'll go from there. Terrific. Great. All right. Uh, you've been listening to the Unofficial Guide Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. Please go onto iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you would like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show. Take care, guys.